You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Well, hi-dee-ho. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. This is episode number 17. With me today, we have a super special guest. We have James Ernest, the founder of Cheap Ass Games and the designer of TAC. Hello. James, welcome to Your Tables on Fire. I am glad to be here. We're glad you're here. First, take a minute and introduce yourself. I'm James Ernest. I'm a game inventor. I got into gaming professionally back in 1993 when Magic the Gathering was first coming out. I was doing some technical writing for them and did some design work as well for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, I started Cheap Ass Games in 1996, and basically as a creative outlet because I was designing a lot of games but had no real hope of selling them in the game industry, so I just (laughs) published them myself. I've done some freelance work for most of the major players in the hobby industry and also took a slight break from publishing Cheap Ass Games to go work for Microsoft and learn about computer games. And right now, we are uh, Cheap Ass Games is kind of in a renaissance period. Thanks to Kickstarter, we're doing deluxe games. Some of them are new. Some of them are reprints of our better old games. And, and right now, we're doing tech. Great. Well, let's take a step even further back and tell us how you got interested in board games in general. Well, you know, everyone likes games. And uh, <laughs> when I was growing up, I my family played a lot of traditional games. They played... Yahtzee and they played Scrabble and Monopoly and you know I was always trying to get my family to play games with me and the extended family had pretty much a tradition of playing pitch which is a trick-taking game they kind of had their own spin on it you can see the rules to pitch in Hoyle but they kind of did it differently than I've seen it ever written up and it was kind of a rite of passage to get into that game so as you know when you're seven or eight and you're like watching them play the game and you're like can I play when am I old enough to play Family games are my roots, and that family also plays casino games. My grandfather taught me how to play license plate poker while we were driving through the Midwest, and my grandmother on the other side taught me how to play five-card draw. So gaming to me has always been very much about family, been about social activity, and it's been about socializing. So now I'm still trying to write to those roots. Like I see that there's a whole industry built up around games that are much more complicated And I understand the pull that game designers sense to sort of deliver on that complexity. But I'm really enjoying writing simple games. It's what I'd rather do. Would you say the social type games, is that your niche? For sure. I mean, all the cheap-ass games are kind of short rule books, easy to, to have table talk. You know, you don't have to be heads down and analyzing every turn in those games because you want to be with your friends and laughing it up and having fun. So in your opinion... In addition to socializing and the engaging experience, what makes a really good game? Well, you know, that's game is such a useless word because it means so many things. Lots of different games are good for different groups. You know, I, I talk about where my focus is, but I enjoy a game if I'm playing it when I'm not playing it. You know it's really good when you think about it when you're not playing it. Magic the Gathering kind of came on the scene with this great one-player part where you build your deck. And you think about how your deck is going to work, even when you don't have anyone to play with. And that sounds trite now, but back then it was really new. If you were playing D&D, if you were the GM, you spent a lot of time creating worlds and so on, but everyone else just kind of showed up for the game. And with Magic, everyone's kind of built their own little world and then took it to the magical place where you got to fight against somebody else's. Do many of your games, would you say they scratch that itch? I don't know. 
but I certainly am enjoying reading people talk about TAC. They're not only building their own sets, but they're writing strategy guides and making AIs and making websites where you can play the game. And that's just, that's cool. It shows how much engagement they have in it. Yeah. There was a great story on Reddit about, and I reposted it on the campaign about somebody who was walking with his brother, I think, and they didn't have the board, but they played anyway. They played a three by three in their heads just as a challenge. And it was, uh, it was a good game. (laughs) I'd like to try that. What inspired you to design your very first game? Um, Boredom. (laughs) So the the first game story is pretty complicated because there's really kind of three answers. The first game I remember inventing was called Cow, and it's something you play while you're driving through the Midwest. The driver takes the side of the car and the passenger takes the other side and you count how many fields of cattle you drive past while you're going down the road. I mean, that's this is a game I invented when I was five. So that's very competitive. Well, it's a straight up gambling game with a random driver. Presumably, you don't know which side of the road is more likely to have cows on it. And one can make the argument that there is no preferred side. So like, you know, you can get into the design aspects of it. There was early playtesting, you know, well, should I get a point for every cow? Well, it's really hard to count all the cows. Okay, well, let's just get a point for every field then. Like, that's game <laughs> development. And right. I mean, that's how long I have been inventing games. Not that that's much of a game, but something to do. When I was in high school, I did a game design for a chess variant called Tishai. And you can find that at cheapass.com now. But it's not really a chess variant in the sense that it's on a different size board and all the pieces do something different. It doesn't have the same exact number of pieces as chess and so on. So it's a game you play with chess pieces. It was meant to be kind of the centerpiece of a fantasy book that I was writing. And I had the outline for the book, but I finished the game. The book never got very far, but the game got playtesting and development and versioning and historical stuff. And like everything I wrote basically for this book was about this game. That sort of made it clear where I was going to wind up, I think. And you said that game is available now. I published it through Cheapass Games in the first few years of Cheapass, and now it's free online. A lot of our older games are basically just rule books, so I've, I've made them free at the website. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you about that. I, so I first got introduced to Cheapass Games. I was watching Beer and Board Games. I'll give them a shout-out. That's a great show. And they were playing a game, I think it was Witch Trial. Yeah. And I loved it. It was hilarious. I'm like, oh, i got to play this with my friends. Where can I buy it? I find your website. And what? It's free. So <laughs> that's crazy. What's going on here? Well, Cheap Ass Games got started with the notion that game companies are overcharging you because they're reselling you all the same components. So you're getting crappy dice and crappy play money and you're paying money for it when you could just have one nice set and just use that for everything. And before there was a Cheap Ass Games, there was an idea for a, a product line called Chief Herman Games that I tried to pitch that you know nobody picked up. And I'm like, well, I, I don't have the resources to make this $200 piece pack as the core of my brand. And so I'm just going to assume I'll build my games around really ordinary stuff that people already have. And that was the first Cheap Ass Games was they came with black and white components and no dice, no play money, no poker decks, like anything that you could scrounge, you had to do that. And people sort of got a different sense of what cheap-ass games should be played with. And I saw a lot of people playing with paper clips and wads of paper and like really crappy components. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like you need to have one really good set of components, but whatever, play <laughs> play it however you like. But, you know, those games occupied a space at the time in, in hobby games, the space under $10 was pretty much evacuated. Everybody had raised their production values and nobody was fighting over it. So I just kind of jumped in there and, and played around for a while. 
And back then it was possible, and now it kind of isn't. And it's disappointing. We had to decide whether to keep the cheap-ass logo when we started making really deluxe stuff ourselves, but we figured it was well-known enough that it had as much name recognition as James Ernest, and so we went ahead and kept it. But these days, we're making deluxe stuff because most of what we make is made on Kickstarter, and of course they're paying for it, so they should have something nice. But (laughs) I've also, as you say, taken a lot of my older games and just put them up totally for free. Yeah, which is, that's super fun. I think of those versions essentially as the demo version. And some of them do have deluxe analogs, but you can go and read the rules. You can see if it's interesting to you. If you're really dedicated, you can print and play it. But for a lot of these games, it's just easier to buy the real thing. And and I think that's fine. Well, you mentioned that things changed in this rebirth of cheap-ass games. Why is there not a market for the sub-$10 game? Well, I actually don't know if there's a market. The problem is that it's not easy for me to produce it anymore. We used to use local printers up here in Seattle. And I don't know if it's true across the country, but here in Seattle, all of the small printers have gone out of business or been consolidated. So I can't get somebody's leftover stock on an afternoon when he's not printing something else to do 200 copies of Kill Dr. Lucky like I used to. People want bigger jobs. Nobody needs printers anymore. Nobody prints anything. Small businesses don't print 200 flyers like they used to. Or if they do, they're going to a print-on-demand shop in California, and it's all very like formal, and they, they know what exactly what sizes they do, and that's what they do, and that's all they do. And those guys don't make card games. They don't know how to do that. So it kind of dried up on the printing side. Uh, by the same token, it's easier for you to print your own copy at your house. And so that's another sort of driver that takes us from the cheap space down to the free space. Interesting. Well, take us back to the days when you launched Cheap Ass Games. This was, I think, 1996. Yep. That was pre-Kickstarter, which is, you know, there's probably people on the podcast that weren't even born before Kickstarter, so that's crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kickstarter's only five years old. I don't know. <laughs> well, you never know. I mean, I could have some four-year-olds listening. What was it like to try and launch a game without Kickstarter? Well, part of the business plan of cheap-ass games was that we didn't have to pay very much because we were doing these really cheap print runs in really short quantities. I did my first 20 or so copies of every game on my laser printer, and I took them to a con, and I was like, here, do you guys want this? Like, It was pretty cheap to get launched. We did six titles that way, and then I found somebody with a printer in his basement, and he was (laughs) giving me a really good deal, and then we found another local printer who could do slightly more volume for us. And like, we really ramped that up slowly. We used to collate those card decks in my house, right? I had staff collating those decks. The first full color card game we did was Falling. And at the time, that was a gigantic investment. Like that card game alone was more out on a limb than we had gone with the whole rest of the company. We had to raise like $10,000 to print that game. And I did it by essentially selling shares of it to friends who would invest. We were like, we need to raise the cash to do this. We'll give you your cash back plus some percentage if and when we sell it. That was how you did stuff before Kickstarter. I mean, investors want to give you a million dollars, but we were looking for 10000 And so we just went to friends. Now, we didn't have operating capital to just cook that up. I mean, a few years later, we did, but not with our first one. What about promotion? You know, Kickstarter is fantastic for getting the word out. It absolutely is. And back then, promotion was word of mouth. Cheapass was also designed to be memorable. There was really nothing else like it when we started. And 
you know, you've got one second to get somebody's attention. So we did that black and white envelope packaging. We had cheap ass games, which is still a name that in some parts of the country, people won't say. We had uh, really like in your face, funny stories on the front cover. Like you were talking about witch trial. That's about lawyers making money off witch trials. It's not really about anything real, but it's definitely like, it's really about lawyers. That game is really just about lawyers. But if we made a game called This Game's About Lawyers, nobody would pick it up, right? We have to give it that punchy feel that makes someone pick it up and read it. Yeah, we had word of mouth. We had players. We had people would go into a game store once a month and say, what's the new cheap-ass game? And we were bringing out a lot of titles because that's the only way that kind of brand succeeds. We also were lucky that there wasn't so much new product every month. Kickstarter does change the landscape in another way, which is retailers pretty much only buy something once. To get promoted to evergreen status, it has to be really amazing. Well, you mentioned you were kicking out so many games. I think I read it was roughly 100 games in a few years. That's crazy. There were a couple of years when we did a game a month. And a game a month was counting expansions and stuff. So like we were doing button men expansions now and then counting those two. But it was a lot of products. I want the job where I'm designing products at that rate because that's the easy part. Making them is really hard, but designing them is pretty easy. (laughs) Of those so many games, what's one you're especially proud of? Oh, I'll tell you, most of them really aren't that good. I mean, like I, <laughs> I tell people that like any other discipline, game design is an art form that you really can only learn by doing. And I published my own and got games out there. And it wasn't just that I started 100 projects. You know, I finished 100 projects and I learned how to do that. So now when I get started with a new game, I, I have a lot of experience, even in production and marketing and all of that to sort of tell me where I should steer it. The games that I really like from that period, I really like Diceland. I supported Diceland a lot longer than I should have just because I loved it so much. And that is a, it's like a tabletop miniatures game that's made out of paper eight-sided dice. Those dice are about two inches across. And it's a combination of physical skill because you're throwing the dice into play and you can knock other dice over and you're trying to get them to land in specific places. And it's random, more or less, what face they land on. But there's a real strategy in how you knock the other guys around. The other half of it is a strategy game because every side of the die has a weapon and a facing and a shield sometimes and an ability and there's commanders that can tell all your other dice to fire and and you know there's a, there's a miniatures game going on here with a physical challenge element and unfortunately that game appeals to the intersection of those two game players so if you like Warhammer 40k and darts then you're gonna love this and if you <laughs> don't like either of those then you're gonna hate it. <laughs> design so many games i'm guessing your design philosophies have evolved over time is that true absolutely yeah i mean unfortunately for the first few years my design philosophy amounted to repeating stuff i'd heard but i'm still trying to sort of filter that out and figure out what i really think about game design and one of the things that i've learned and that i do believe pretty strongly is you have to test as soon as you can You have to get your idea in front of people who are not emotionally invested in it and see what they think and see what their expectations are to see if you've got anything. Early game designers and possibly people well into their careers tend to have this perfect plan mentality where they have to solve all of their problems on the whiteboard and make a prototype and have rules from start to finish and put it in front of people. And then when those people react in a negative way to make pretty small changes until they've sort of focused their game into a place where it needs to be. And I just feel like I'm so bad at guessing. I've made so many terrible first drafts that I have much more enjoyed bouncing an idea off somebody or a couple of mechanics or just what I think is the basics of the game and building it around the basics during the first few playtests. Is that the process you followed with TAC? Every game is different. With TAC, 
I leaned on Pat to give me a brief for months and months and months. And to hear him tell it, he just kind of didn't want it to give it to me. I, I just figured he was busy. But he says, I just don't think anybody can make this. And even if it's right, it's not going to be fun and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he'd already tried to make tack when he was writing the book and discovered game design is not easy. Hooray. Um <laughs> So he was deliberately vague about how it worked because he just didn't want to tie himself down to anything. And that, that was smart. I like that he does that. I finally got the brief out of him. And, and it was basically, here's everything in the book. And here's what else I think about Tack. I think it's a game about somehow making connections or building roads. I think it's a game where small, simple pieces can somehow combine to make more powerful pieces. I think all the basics. It's a traditional two-player abstract strategy game that's in the category of chess and go and others of that ilk. And so, you know, not a gambling game, not a game with secret information, doesn't have to scale up above two players. And also some background stuff like people used to carry around their own sets and their stones had a certain, you know, quality that some of them are easier to stack up and some of them are harder to stack up. I got a sense from all of that about stacking stones and about combining pieces from that brief, I was able to say, okay, let's see if we can make a game out of this. One of the early breakthroughs in designing the game was, if you've seen the game, there's pieces that lay flat and that make a road, and that's how you win a road across the board. And there's pieces that stand up that you cannot stack a piece on top of, so they are essentially the top of a stack, but they don't count as part of a road. In early drafts, when I had those two piece types, I had two pieces, and I was trying to figure out how many of each piece would be appropriate and whether someone should be able to sort of tune their set and say, well, I'll always play with four walls and 20 regular pieces or whatever. So it was a great breakthrough to say, no, it should be the same piece, and you just play it standing up, and that lets someone decide for himself how many of each piece he needs to win this game. Let's take a step back on tack because I want to make sure all my listeners know exactly what it is. Can you give us the quick rundown of the game? Yeah, um, it's the game out of the wise man's fear. Patrick Rothfuss talks about it in very general terms, and and the main character, Kavoth, is traveling in Vintas, I think, and he meets a nobleman who teaches him all about how the court works and teaches him how to play tack. And it is, uh, what we've said, a a two-player abstract strategy game where you take turns, as you would expect, like you do in chess. You put pieces on the board as you do in Go, but you can also move them and move them into stacks that become taller and more powerful and can reach farther because moving means taking a whole stack and spreading it out as far as you want. I don't know. I mean, the the goal of the design was really to make something that was simple in a traditional way. The bounding box is kind of described by Chess and Mancala and Go and Nine Men's Morris and all of those simple traditional games that we know that have a cap to the amount of rules that you want to be forced to learn. Somebody told me that Go was simpler than Tack. I, th- I think it was a dig, but I couldn't really tell. And, and I'm like, well, every- Go is simpler than everything, but thank you. And so I went and read the uh, the tournament rules for Go, and they are long. <laughs> they are longer than you think. <laughs> How you design for elegance and simplicity? What is that process like? Well, in part, it's a matter of practice, but you have to have a goal. You have to be trying to simplify, and you have to sort of develop a tendency to remove and not to add. You see it, obviously, in new game designers, and you see it often in experienced game designers, too. Well, they will see something and feel as though it's not complicated enough to be new. And there's always that tendency to just pepper more stuff in, especially when you already know the game, you're going to make it more complicated because it's satisfying your need to dig deeper and deeper into it. So I've always tried to teach people to, if your game is not already perfect, it probably has too much and not too little. And you need to find something to remove to make it work better. 
that's much harder to do, but it's much more satisfying when it works. Some of the things that you remove are basically like restrictions about when you can and can't do stuff. I'll give you blackjack as an example. In blackjack, you can double on your first two cards. You can double down, which means you double your bet and you get exactly one more card. And in some houses, you can only double down on 9 or 10 or 11. And while that does mostly make sense, there's other times when you would like to. And so in other houses, you can double on any two cards. And there's just so much more freedom and so much more space to explore the game by just removing that restriction and saying double on any two cards. There's a few soft hands you should double on, especially if you're counting cards. And, you know, there's sometimes when you should double no matter what you have, because all there's left in the deck is tens, right? So... In TAC, one of the things that is fairly open is that you can play a new piece in any open space. It doesn't have to do with what side of the board belongs to you or where your other pieces are. I did a game called The Very Clever Pipe Game many years ago where you can play a new card anywhere on the table as long as it conforms to the grid of the cards that are already there. And so that means if something's not working for you, just start something new. I did Agora a couple of years after that, which is a similar tile laying game. But in that one, it doesn't even have to conform to the grid. You can play a card anywhere on the table in any orientation. We're doing the same behavior here, but the design space opens up so much just by pulling those restrictions away. So you would say that simplicity and that elegance, you're bringing that to everything you're doing. I try to, yeah, because your player doesn't care right? On your first play, someone doesn't care how intricate your game is or how complicated your game is. And uh, there are exceptions to this, and I don't really write for that guy. But most people, when they're entering a new world, they just want to get the basics, and then they want to start playing. Playing is about pushing at something and guessing what it's going to do, and sometimes being right and learning about the thing. And the sooner you can start playing, the sooner you can start enjoying the game. And then there's more to it. If there's more rules or if there's more strategy, you can kind of unfold that a piece at a time. I play new hobby games with people, and I swear their whole objective is to learn the rules. They spend most of their game with their nose buried in the rule book, and after they've played it two or three times and get how the game works, they move on to another game. That's not a game to me. Like, okay, we finally figured out how this works. Now let's start strategizing. Oh, well, it's kind of become boring now because we know how it works. Okay. Right. You, you told us that story about... Patrick trying to design this game himself <laughs> yeah. through his hands. Then you mentioned that you know he was very hesitant about handing it over to you. At that time, what was going through your head? I mean, were you excited about this challenge? Is that why you were egging him to say, hey, let's do this? I mean, Patrick's got a big following, and I so I knew that we could do well with the game if it was good. But I don't usually get a chance to design abstract strategy games because I don't know how to sell them. I don't know who wants to buy them in terms of publishers or or in terms of customers. And so I was just excited at the chance to do an abstract, which I don't normally get to do, and have it seen by a lot of people. A couple of years ago, I entered Daniel Salas's Thousand Year Game Design Challenge. His challenge was essentially the same principles as, as those we were using for TAC, which is write a game that might still be around in a thousand years, or write a game that might have been played a thousand years ago. Really simple components, really simple rules, just a thing like tic-tac-toe that you can scratch in the sand and play. After that contest, Daniel wrote to me and he was like, so what are you going to do with this game? And I was like, nothing. Isn't that great? Like, I don't, I don't have to try and sell it. I'm done. <laughs> Is that a game available on your website? Yeah, it's called Take Back Toe. It's, um, I guess it's kind of a gambling game. It's a 12 square grid. It's three by four. And you start with 40 stones in the center. There's 10 on each of the center spaces. 
you get to roll a six-sided die, and that tells you how many stones you can move. And you're trying to get them into your home row, and I think you're trying to get three out of your four home row spaces to have the same number of stones in them. So that's basically how it goes. So the die tells you basically where you can and can't do stuff. And for that, it is not a pure abstract, but it's certainly simple enough to sort of fit in that category. And you can play it with anything. So you're interested in doing an abstract game. This seemed like a good opportunity. But designing a game that compares to chess and Go, that seems like incredibly ambitious. Of course. I mean, but chess and Go, I mean, I, Go bothers me. Everyone loves it and it's a perfect game and blah, blah, blah. But it still bothers me that Go has a patch rule. Like even a game that simple needs a rule that says, oh, you can't play infinitely the same game state. I am not allowed to take the game one step back Okay, you just can't do that. And there's a couple of other less band-aid-y seeming rules in Go. And when and, and Go promises to be like the most simple, elegant thing. It frustrates me. And chess has similar things. Chess has evolved these sort of weird rules. Like even castling is a little weird, but capturing on passant is weird. And the pawn turning into the queen is super weird. And like, why does it need these things? As a game designer, I look at this and go, why does it need these things? It is not really a designed game in the modern sense. Chess evolved from prior games, some of which had dice. Like chess is this amalgamated game designed by committee. And for a lot of its life, it's that committee is made of its experts. So it becomes that rarefied thing that chess players love that other people kind of can't get. So I think that there are ways you can do better than chess and go. It's not like they are the pinnacle of design. They are examples in a category that still hasn't really been totally defined. Hmm. See, that dissatisfaction, people are probably going to tell me that chess is perfect and I should shut up, but <laughs> that dissatisfaction with the existing offerings in a category is what drives artists to make new art. We can't ever be satisfied. We always have right. to pick stuff apart. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. As you were designing tech, were you constantly interacting with Patrick or was this, you kind of went off in your own corner, did your went thing? Off, I went off on my own corner. I, one of the weird things about working with Patrick and that's just something we all get used to, is that he's rarely available. He's a very, very busy guy. And insert dig about not writing his book. But whatever <laughs> he's doing, he's running a charity. He's signing movie deals. He's a busy, busy guy. And so I did not really have an opportunity to show it to him for a couple of months. I kind of designed my schedule around that. I said, well, we're going to see each other in February. It's December now. Let me take the best game that I can to him when I see him next. And so for those couple of months, I was designing TAC. Just like I had friends visiting from out of town. Good, you're playing TAC with me. I got designer friends locally. Good, you're playing TAC with me. I've got Go players and chess players. I've got people on my extended playtest list who love games like this. I brought them in. I made them play it as soon as I could. And I got their feedback and made the game better. It was without Pat's input. Like that two-page brief that I got out of him, I knew that was all I was going to get. So I was always going back to that and saying, well, does how much of this can I satisfy? How much of it is tricky? How much of it is contradictory? Like, I, I think I got about 80% of the brief into the game. It was a total crapshoot. And I was really nervous to show it to him because it was kind of like we were on the Joko cruise, actually, and kind of stuck on a boat together for a week. And it's like, well, <laughs> if you like this game, this is going to be a good cruise. And if you don't, it's going to be a little <laughs> uncomfortable. We were both totally okay with, with it not working. We really didn't have a lot of ego invested in it, so it, it wasn't really going to be a bad cruise. But it was a good cruise because we all liked it. And it, you know, Pat and a lot of the other people that were in that group on the boat were playing a lot of the game and trying to knock holes in it. And of course, it was still pretty new to me, so I was trying with them to try to, to rip it up and see if it was broken. And we all came out of it thinking it was, it was pretty solid. Is that roughly the same game as on Kickstarter today? Yeah. 
Uh, it is. Since then, we have explored the edges of the space, and we have changed only the smallest pieces of the rules. But it is it was more or less the same core game then. Well, let's talk a little more about Kickstarter. You guys have been alive for, I think, about a week. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's been a week and two days at this point. And overall, how are things going? Pretty well. We are in the, the high range of our expectations. You know, when you're when you start a Kickstarter, you can never really know, but you always try to guess. And we're very satisfied with where it's at. The biggest frustration on my part is that I am terrible at sourcing stuff that is not paper games. And so we've been trying to get high-end components, wood boards, metal pieces, stone pieces, like cool stuff that we can put in this campaign. And it is still in process. And that's the most frustrating thing. I wish I wasn't trying to build this boat while it was at sea, but I'm also not going to wait forever until everything's perfect to get this thing launched. And the core game, we certainly had figured out. So that is quite popular. People are all up in the top two pledge levels right now, just waiting for us to give them any opportunity to give us more money. And I feel like (laughs) they're just pressing against that wall, like, come on, give us something else. I'm like, okay, I will, I will, I will. Um, I'm pretty happy with the quality of the reviews that we've gotten. We managed to send out a pretty small number of review sets because I had to make them. They're turned out pretty good. People are saying good things about the game. I think Penny Arcade gave us a shout out last night, so that was good. I am quite satisfied with the numbers. Of course, when you're in the middle of a campaign, no number is high enough because that's your job. Your job is to want them to go higher. But if you look at our predictions, the me of a month ago is pretty happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned sourcing the materials, and I read, I think it was on Patrick's website, that you guys are planning to use a U.S. manufacturer. Is that adding additional complexity? Well, I don't source anything out of China ever, so it's equally complex for me no matter what. There are a couple of things we were going to get in China. Campaign Coins makes their coins in China, so like our collector coin is coming out of them. But as a general rule, we prefer to source stuff in the U.S. It is sometimes more expensive, but it is better. Not just politically, but usually in terms of our stress level, like one of the components, and I won't bore you with telling you which one, but one of the components, it was either going to go to China and need like a four or five month lead time, or we're going to do it in the US and we're going to need five weeks. And this is a component that still needs some design work. So like we either had to finish the thing basically by the time the Kickstarter was over and save ourselves a little bit or give ourselves the summer to make it and then get it done in the US. Like... We're so glad we decided to do it in the U.S. because I know I would already be two weeks behind on a two-week project. (laughs) I think you can't really expect that you'll get any quality work done while you're sweating a Kickstarter. Although I have certainly been making great progress on our stone pieces. I just talked to the sculptor today and he's totally on board, knows what we need. He's going to get us some sketches as soon as he can. Like, I wish I had done all this last month, but I think we're going to get it to a point that we can announce it within a few days. Oh, that's exciting. We did also announce today that we attached Echo Chernick to this project, and she, you know, she's just a fantastic illustrator. Saw the game last weekend, loved it, and was like, I will be part of this if you let me draw your main board. And I'm like, the main board's really boring, Echo. She's like, it's okay. It's what I want to do, and I'm going to make it amazing. It's okay. Good. Come on board. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. So speaking of stretch goals, several of your stretch goals involve new variants on the gameplay. Yeah. Is that or those are already me being greedy is what that is because I love fighting (laughs) games right like I can do that we've already got some negative feedback about that unfortunately because we're writing we want to give different piece designs and different styles of play for all the different sort of regions in the book and we started with essentially launching these things in the order that Kvothe travels the world 
And of course, he doesn't encounter the game until the middle of the second book. And so all of the world that he's gone through beforehand, people are looking at that going, well, why didn't he learn this game on page one? Okay, well, he didn't because he didn't. I don't know. Pat's okay with it. Why are you not okay with it? Um, it's my way of saying I can make more content because not only do I enjoy writing games and game variants, but I've, there's also all the options that we had for the game during development that wound up not being part of the game. And it's sort of fun to throw them all into a book and say, well, if you really want to play for money, here's a way to do it. If you really want to play for points, here's another way to do it. If you want to give the capstone some extra powers, here's a special power that didn't wind up in the game and so on. So are these ideas you already have bubbling in your head? or There's a small number of them that come from the origin of the game, the process of inventing the game. I think we're going to make a lot more and, and they're fairly easy. Like I think I like treating tack as if it were an ancient game. And in that sense, variance is part of what comes with it. Like, again, I looked at the rules for Go today, and there are all kinds of regional variants, even in tournament rules, about the rules to Go. And that's just what happens when a game is hundreds or thousands of years old. So after the campaign, what's next for TAC? I don't know. I'm just going to go to sleep. Actually, there's a magic number <laughs> where I don't even fulfill the campaign. I just, you know, set up an account in Panama and, and you know... <laughs> It's a big number. That's, that's fair. It's a big number. Um, what's next for TAC is, you know, we produce this thing. And I think um, any of the great ideas that we had during the campaign but we couldn't execute on, and I'm sure there's going to be some, are going to wind up being ancillary products later. Uh, we want to do a lot of alternate art boards, but they won't all come in. We, we want to do, obviously, the stone piece set. But if it doesn't happen now, it can always happen later. I know Pat is going to want to continue selling the game and versions of it and probably licensing it to other manufacturers. We have a, a pretty solid European manufacturer who's looking to license it for their product line and, and so on. I mean, it's it's got a lot of potential. Now, from cheap-ass games perspective, we want to try to keep it simple. So we are going to manufacture the retail version. We'll keep some version of the book available because it's got so much good information in it. But the retail version is just the straightforward introduction to the game. One set of rules, one set of pieces, nice package, and, and hopefully uh, pretty enough to wind us up in Barnes & Noble. What about cheap-ass games? What's what's next for you guys? Now, that's definitely me taking a long nap. Uh, <laughs> we've managed to bring a lot of our best evergreens back into print now. Kill Dr. Lucky is getting assembled next week and shipping out a few weeks after that. That was our first game. It's our best game. It's great to have this new edition in print. So we're going to be promoting Kill Dr. Lucky all summer. We're looking at trying to do some kind of participatory Kill Dr. Lucky event at PAX because a lot of the murderers in that game are local. The next Kickstarter that we're going to do is pretty small, actually, by comparison to TAC, but we're going to bring back Button Men. This is a dice combat game, which uh, if your listeners have any suggestions, I'm all ears because we're taking the buttons out of it. It used to be printed on pin back buttons, and you would wear these at a convention to advertise that you play the game. It's a really quick playing dice game. You can play it in line. It's got good strategy in it, and it's, it's a five-minute game. We're going to do a version of it that has a lot of characters in the same box, and they're printed on trading cards, and it's the same mechanics, but they're not buttons, and so I think we probably can't call it Button Men. Still looking for a good name for it. I'm sure someone can come up with something. I hope someone does. That someone isn't me. I've been racking my brain for months now. And, <laughs> and naming that game Button Men was a stroke of luck. Just, I mean, I'd been thinking about that game for a couple of months, and I knew I was going to put it on buttons. It was originally invented to go on coasters, actually. There was a restaurant that was attached to a game store. They wanted free games, so I invented this thing where the characters are the coasters, and you need dice to play, and you could go next door and buy the dice. Like, I thought it was brilliant. They didn't buy it. <laughs> so now I have a game that goes on coasters and sells dice, which I absolutely don't need. 
I figure I could put it on buttons, and then a few weeks later, I come up with the name Button Men, and oh, that's just perfect, and that's where it goes. I'm still waiting for that inspiration to strike on the remake. <laughs> <laughs> I think we may package it with dice, which is kind of like goes against the whole notion of what Cheap Ass Games was all was all about. But you know, they're nice dice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, give us some advice for someone who's trying to get started in game design, the game industry. What would you say to them? Well, I don't know. I think that the industry part of it and the design part of it are not really related in any good way. Like I spend a lot of my time running my business and a precious little amount of my time actually designing games. And the reason for that is that the game design part doesn't pay very much. The production part is what pays. So if you want to be a game designer, you got to have a business plan that supports that. There are plenty of people who are making a living as professional game designers, so I don't want to dissuade anyone from that, but I don't really consider that to be my job. I, I kind of wish it was. Well, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> I know, right? But I get a chance to do it now and then, and that's good. And I, I, uh, I feel like I'm an entrepreneur. I run my own business, right? Other game designers do not. They sell their games to publishers and don't have to deal with the day-to-day headaches of publishing. I tell people they shouldn't start a game company unless they like companies a lot more than they like games because that's going to be their problem. <laughs> well, James, it's time for us to get serious here. I'm ready. And play the game design challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how this works. I'm going to give to you a theme. Just pick a random theme off a list. And then I want you to think it over out loud, preferably, since yep. this is a podcast. And then... Pitch it back to us. What would that game be? Okay. You up for that? Absolutely. Okay. I like it. So let's find a theme here. And I'm not going to make it too easy for you either, since you're a professional. I am. Okay. This is my favorite thing to do, by the way. So I'll tell you about designing to a theme sometime when you have another hour. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Your theme is... Chatty Afterlife. Where did that come from? (laughs) I told you they're random. So it's two words chosen at random. I love that. Chatty Afterlife. What does that even mean? Let's see. Is it? It could mean anything. I know it could mean anything. It could mean that when you go to heaven, you go to heaven with all the gossipers who talked about (laughs) you, or all the people you talked about wind up in the same room with you. (laughs) You're right. Um, right. you're, you're waiting in line at the pearly gates. You got to do something. Oh, okay. Okay. I can see that. Boy, I've done a line waiting game and it was no good. Uh, it, it turns <laughs> out your it, was, chance to redeem. it was even more boring than waiting in an actual line. No, I like the idea. <laughs> I like the idea that there's these levels of purgatory where you are forced to interact in a positive way with all the people that you've said bad things about throughout <laughs> your life. Right? Like I have okay. this feeling like when I die, I'm going to be shown a movie of all the dumb stuff I did. Like, <laughs> this is your permanent record. Now watch it, and then you get into heaven. So that time when you were missing a contact lens, it was stuck to your sweater for like three days. <laughs> like, you're going to see all of this and have it explained to you in gruesome detail before you before you get to go to heaven. So this uh, is that like, is hell right there. Yeah, right, exactly. This is like okay, everything you've done wrong, but it's all about gossip. It's like all the dumb things you said. By the way, I'm living that hell right now. I tend to be pretty liberal with my bad talk about people, and it all comes back to hurt me. <laughs> I, I just can't stop. I'm sure they feel the same way about me, so I think it's fair. But um, so every player, it's a multiplayer game. That's usually what I tend to write. Multiplayer okay. party game. Every player is a back fence gossiper who is in purgatory with 
either all the people they've talked bad about or just all the dead people they've talked bad about. I don't know if the live people are represented here by some <laughs> some AI <laughs> angels. <laughs> Although AI angels might be the best thing. No, they're all AI <laughs> angels because why would you torment the real people with right. this experience? They're all ghosts in a sort of video game sense of the <laughs> of the people they've talked smack about. And the object is to get into heaven first, but of course you have to put up with all this terrible stuff you did in life. <laughs> and the way the interaction of the game works is that, of course, the terrible stuff is everyone's playing it on each other. Like, oh, wait, we are. you can't leave yet. You did this, right? You, right. Yeah, remember that time you you, call, you pulled the fire alarm at school? Well, here's where that went down. <laughs> so I moved back three spaces or whatever the local equivalent is. There we go. The Chatty Afterlife is a game of surviving purgatory and living down all the dumb things you said before you die. <laughs> wow, that is that is pretty remarkable <laughs> and incredibly miserable. <laughs> oh, you caught me on a good day, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect. <laughs> oh, James, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad we got this to work. We couldn't get it to work yesterday. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm super glad. That was my own personal purgatory was yesterday. So we well, made I'm, it work. I'm glad that. I could I could be there if only in ghost form. <laughs> yeah, you were my my AI angel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and James, best of luck with the rest of Tack and the campaign. Oh, thank you very much. I'm about to return to sending emails about price quotes. <laughs> that sounds like super fun. It's a great fun for a first th- Thursday night. <laughs> okay we'll talk to you later thanks take care well that was james Ernest, the founder of cheap ass games and the designer of tack currently on kickstarter you've been listening to your tables on fire connect with us on twitter and send us your crazy game design challenge ideas that's at table fire you can also connect with us on itunes stitcher board game geek and now Google Play. Head over there and give us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Well, until next time, go light it up. <laughs>